everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Lisa and I are still out on the Oregon coast, and that's been lovely. I went to a used bookstore the other day that is my favorite type of used bookstore, although I must say this is not my favorite used bookstore. The type of used bookstore that it is, is the kind that I think you usually only find in small towns, and it is just piles and piles of paperback books that are kind of poorly organized, but are between like one and three dollars each. And that is exactly the kind of shit that I love to browse. But the reason this store is not my favorite store is because they seem to take a hostile approach to people browsing, and I suspect rather a lot of people in general. We had been at this bookstore about a year ago and noticed that, uh, A, the lady working there just mean mugged us the entire time we were in there, which is fair. I am a big proponent of people in retail and customer service hating their customers. It's a time-honored tradition. And two, she had placed a handwritten sign that was on notebook paper in the window that said, God save America, please, with a bunch of exclamation points after it. Which was an interesting decoration choice. And when we returned to the store this year, we noted that it was still up. And also there was a new sign on the front door that said, This is a bookstore, not the waiting room for a head shop. Which, not to brag, but I had already pieced together from context clues. First of all, there were an awful lot of books in there. And for another thing, there didn't seem to be a head shop nearby. And, even if there was, head shops don't usually have waiting rooms. Although it probably wouldn't be the worst idea in the world if they did. I mean, when you're making an important decision like, which of these blacklight posters is really going to expand my consciousness, man? It would be nice to have a place to sit down and think about it for a second. You know, without having one of those high-pressure head shop salesmen breathing down your neck, saying that he's going to go talk to the manager to see if he can knock a few bucks off the undercoating on the poster, and that there's another customer who's interested in this, and you know, as soon as we finish measuring him for his bong, he's probably going to come back and buy it, so if you're interested, you better act now. Anyway, got a couple of mystery novels. Lady gave me a pretty dirty look as she was ringing me up. At first I thought it was because my book purchasing was interrupting her conservative talk radio program that she was listening to very loudly. But when I got home, I realized that the mystery novels that I got didn't have a cat in them who solved the crime. So I don't really understand how they can even be called mystery novels. I think they were misshelved. Maybe that's what she was upset about. Or it might have been the fact that I did keep loudly asking Lisa if she thought our bong was ready yet. Who can say for sure? Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Mark Paglia. The writers wanted more retcons after their infinitely earthed crisis, so why not go all the way back to Beast Boy's ill-advised hypnosis? The people want more of Brom Stick, 
and a whole lot of the antithesis. Now that we've watched the Titans clip show, Hub can give a new story's synopsis. Synopsis? Thanks, Mark. New Titans number 56, July 1989. More than human. Which, incidentally, is the name of a very good Theodore Sturgeon book. Written by George Perez and Marv Wolfman. Drawed by Mark Bright. Inked by Romeo Tangal. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Barbara Kiesel. New Titan Roll Call. Herald. Bumblebee. Lilith. Nightwing slash Robin. Wonder Girl. Beast Boy. Kid Flash. Speedy. Aqualad! Hooray! Flamebird! Hawk! Dove! Golden Eagle! And... Gnark! Previously in the New Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, a time machine exploded while Mal Duncan was carrying a box near it. Mal got lost in time and ran afoul of a teenage caveman named Gnark. Eventually, Mal managed to return to his own time, but accidentally picked up Gnark as a sort of temporal stowaway. The Titans used the 1970s equivalent of Duolingo to teach the time-tossed teenage troglodyte English, and Gnark joined the team and started dating the gang's red-haired occasional psychic Lilith. After a while, Lilith and Gnark quit the team and moved to California, where they briefly teamed up with a group of teenage heroes who called themselves the Teen Titans West. An indeterminate amount of comic book time later, the two former titans separated, and there was a whole kerfuffle where Lilith found out that she was a Greek god. Good for her! Then a company-wide crossover event called the Crisis on Infinite Earths happened, which retconned some of what were deemed the sillier or more complicated aspects of the DC Universe's history out of existence. Mal Duncan had now gone by the superhero codename Harold, and had no longer gotten a magical shofar for punching an angel in the dick. Lilith was no longer a Greek god, Wonder Girl was no longer affiliated with Wonder Woman, and the only references to Ganark were cryptic mentions of something tragic happening to poor Ganark. Gadzooks! Back in the pre-crisis days, how did Mal manage to get back to his own time anyway? What was the nature of the tragedy that befell poor Gnark? And what exactly is the new, less silly and complicated version of Mal's magical shofar? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... A combination of Kid Flash's super speed, sorcery, nonsense science, and his own background in urban pole vaulting. He was shot by some evil science bullies. And... He and his girlfriend Karen Beecher, a.k.a. Bumblebee, invented a super-science soprano saxophone called the Gabriel Horn, which randomly alters dimensional barriers because it was surreptitiously programmed by an evil alien who lived in the Titan's supercomputer and wanted to banish the gang to the realm of bad vibes, which is run by his buddy who used to dress like he was giving tours of Colonial Williamsburg, but now dresses like a statue. See? Totally sensible and uncomplicated. Thanks, Crisis on Infinite Earths! Karen Beecher is in downtown San Francisco hanging out with Dr. Sarah Charles, Cyborg's girlfriend slash physical therapist. They head into a nightclub called Gabriel's Horn. Hey, 
Isn't that the name of Mal's super science soprano sax? Yup. It turns out Mal owns the club. And I guess he has that Marv Wolfman thing where when he likes a name, he just keeps using it. Mal is on stage playing a regular-ass, non-dimension-altering trumpet. He's pretty good. When he finishes his solo, he's like, Okay, thanks for listening to me play some jazz. Someone will be out here soon to start playing some music that you actually like. Bye! Jeez. I guess Mal's self-confidence issues didn't get retconned away. He jumps off stage and greets Karen and Sarah, and the three of them all head to a table in the back where it's a little quieter. Mal asks if Cyborg is going to be joining them, and Sarah is like, Nah, he was going to, but he had to do some Titan stuff back in New York. I couldn't go with him because I'm trying to help Star Lab set up a new Titans West Coast team. Karen is like, Uh, that reminds me of me and Mal when we were younger. Mal is like, Oh, how's that? Karen's like, Well, it's subtle, but remember how when we were dating, you were a superhero who lived in New York and was on the Titans, and I was a scientist working at Star Labs here in California and helping establish the Teen Titans West? Mal is like, Oh, right. Yeah, I guess there are some similarities. I still think it's weird that you're going to go back to being a superhero and be on the new Titans West team. Karen is like, well, if I didn't say yes, they might have asked Hawk to be on the team. Everyone laughs at Karen's funny joke that anyone would ever want Hawk to be part of their team. Several minutes later, once they've all finished laughing at what a stupid piece of crap Hawk is, Sarah's like, tell me a story about the old Titans team that you guys were on. Karen is like, okay, here's a fun story about a horrific tragedy that we all experienced. It was especially traumatic for Lilith. The story starts a few years ago, towards the end of the original Titans run. Karen was giving her Titans West teammates, Lilith and Don Hall, aka Dove, a tour of Star Labs, where she worked in her civilian identity. They were walking down a hallway when a certain room started making Lilith's Lilith sense tingle. She was like, there's some super creepy vibes coming out of that room. Let's go check it out. They started to head towards the room. But a security guard stopped them and told them that A, the room was empty, and 2, Karen's day job didn't give her clearance to go in there. They left, but Lilith was a little shaken by what she had sensed, and asked Dick, who was still going by Robin at the time, to look into it. So, Dick did some detective work, and somehow, based only on the information that an empty room in a science building was giving off an ooky vibe, came to the conclusion that the East and West Coast Titans should team up together and take their helicopter to an unnamed country in Southeast Asia. Wow, that's some pretty impressive detective work. Once they were all hovering above wherever the hell they were, Lilith started getting weird vibes again. Robin had Kid Flash scout ahead, and he found a bunch of people with fancy construction equipment digging up stuff. Dick was like, are they Americans? Wally was like, I don't know, are we looking for Americans? Dick was like, I don't know who or what we're looking for, but there's only one way to find out. Ill-defined detective work? Nope, not this time. Dick turned on the helicopter's loudspeaker and was like, Hey, are you guys down there doing anything that would make a teenage girl get creeped out? We're good guys, by the way. The guys with the digging equipment weren't in a mood to chat, so they got out a bunch of fancy giant guns. The guy in charge was like, 
don't hurt them. Just scare them away. The guys with giant fancy guns were like, okay. Then they shot down the helicopter. Huh. I'm not a doctor, but it seems to me like being in a helicopter crash would hurt most people. Fortunately, the Titans aren't most people. Dick ordered the Titans who could fly to jump out of the chopper and start fighting the gun guys. So they did. Then he turned to Speedy and was like, Roy, can you shoot a giant hammock arrow into those trees so that all of us non-flying Titans can jump into it and not die? Speedy was like, Dick, I once shot a tiny parachute onto a monkey who fell out of a tree. Dick was like, I know, you keep bringing that up, and it doesn't answer my question. Can you do the giant hammock thing? Speedy was like, I can if you buy me a fancy dinner in Paris. Dick was like, fine. So Speedy shot an arrow with a giant hammock in it onto the trees. The non-flying titans all jumped into the hammock as their helicopter crashed in the background. Then they scampered down to the ground and helped their airborne counterparts punch some gun havers. Dove checked on one of the gun havers his pals had punched and was like, Hey, just so you know, these guys aren't Dacian, so I don't think they're from around here. Bumblebee was like, That's okay, I wasn't killing them. Huh. Not crazy about the implications of that exchange. The Titans were doing pretty well for themselves against the gun havers, with one notable exception. Mal tooted on his super science horn that did random things, and it made one of the huge anti-aircraft weapons sink into the ground at a weird angle. It went off and shot Wonder Girl out of the sky. Oops. Fortunately, she's Wonder Girl, so she was okay. Despite Mal's little dimensional faux pas, the gang more or less mopped the floor with their antagonists. Two of them tried to escape in a boat, but Aqualad showed up riding a pair of dolphins and rounded them up. Hooray! Then the guy who told the gun havers not to hurt anybody came out of the tent and was like, Hey, I'm Dr. Roderick Buckminster, and I'm in charge here. We work for Star Labs and have permits for all the shit we're doing. Dick was like, Do you have a permit to shoot down helicopters? Dr. Buckminster was like, Probably. Besides, we thought you were bad guys. Dick was like, But we explicitly told you we were good guys. Dr. Buckminster was like, Which is exactly what a bad guy would say. By the way, we're the good guys. Dick was like, oh, well, sorry we broke all your science stuff. Lilith was like, Dick, I can sense that there's something alive deep down under this lake. Something intelligent. It will die unless we can rescue it. It's calling out for me. Dick was like, what is it saying? Lilith was like, it's saying, Gnark! Dick was like, can you science guys help us dredge this creature up? Dr. Buckminster was like, we could if someone hadn't broken all of our science stuff. Oops. The gang rigged Aqualad up with a waterproof headset so that Lilith could tell him where to look for whoever was sending the psychic SOS call. At this point, Mal and Karen interrupt their narration to opine that it must have sucked for Aqualad that he was never a full member of the Titans on account of the fact that he needed water every hour. What? That right there is some bullshit. Anyway, Aqualad, who was so a full member of the Titans and a founding member to boot, 
swam down to the bottom of the lake and found a giant chunk of ice with something dude-shaped stuck in the middle of it. The undisputed greatest full member of the Titans of all time slapped a science doohickey onto the slab of ice and swam to the surface. On the shore of the lake, Mal tooted purposefully on his sci-fi saxophone, and much to everyone's surprise, the giant block of ice was teleported to the middle of the encampment. Hooray! Dr. Buckminster and his science and gun-having buddies packed up the slab of ice and headed home. A day or so later, the gang headed to Star Labs to check on their discovery, and found Dr. Buckminster and his associates hard at work in that one room that gave Lilith weird vibes before. The ice wasn't fully melted, but enough of it had been chipped away that we can see that the dude-shaped form stuck in the middle of it was a caveman with a glowing jewel lodged in the middle of his chest. One of the science minions was like, Here's the deal. The caveman's still alive. The jewel in his chest is giving off huge energy readings. We'd like to examine the jewel, but if we remove it, it'll kill the caveman. Dr. Buckminster was like, well, the caveman's probably going to die soon anyway, so... Lilith was like, No! I bet I can save him with my occasional psychicness if you'll only let me. Dr. Buckminster was like, What are you kids doing in here? Go home! Most of the gang was like, Yeah, okay, this is boring and we like our homes. But Lilith was like, No way! I want to help this caveman! Buckminster was like, no, get out of here. And also, I forbid you to talk to the press about this. I want to keep this a secret. So if you tell anyone, you're fired. Robin was like, uh, we don't work here. So I don't think you can fire us. Dr. Buckminster was like, whatever. I'm a scientist, not a job knower about her. Lilith was like, well, if you don't let me hang around, I'll tell everyone about whatever it is that you're doing. Dr. Buckminster was like, dang it, fine, you can hang out here, but I'm going to be an even bigger jerk from now on. Lilith was like, deal. The rest of the gang headed home, but Lilith stuck around and spent the next indeterminate amount of time in the bad vibes room hanging out with the frozen caveman. Over the next couple of days, the science guys thawed him out, but he still didn't wake up. The machines told them that the caveman was going to die soon, so they decided to carve the gem out now so they could study it and hack up the caveman as well for science reasons. Predictably, Lilith thought this was a bad plan. She prevailed upon the science jerks to let her psychic at the caveman for a few minutes and see if she could wake him up before they started slicing. Begrudgingly, the science jerks went along with this plan. Lilith grabbed the caveman's forehead and started saying, GNARK! a bunch of times. Suddenly, pink energy beams started shooting all over the room. Then there was a big explosion and Lilith was knocked out. The noise from the explosion attracted the attention of Dr. Buckminster's boss, who we haven't seen before. He popped his head into the room and was like, What are you guys doing in here? So, not a real hands-on boss, I guess. Dr. Buckminster was like, well, Dr. Mesner, we were going to vivisect this living caveman and steal his jewel. You know, for science. Dr. Mesner was like, what the fuck? Don't do that. Dr. Buckminster was like, or, counteroffer, 
We bonk you over the head with a lead pipe, and then do do that. Before Dr. Mesner even had time to giggle at the fact that his colleague inadvertently said doo-doo, Dr. Buckminster hit him over the head with a lead pipe. Then he turned to his science buddies and was like, Well, guess we better kill him and the girl. Then we can get to work hacking up this caveman. Jeez, that took a turn. Fortunately, before the science jerks could carry out their evil plan, Gnark, because come on, the caveman's Gnark, woke up and started beating the shit out of them. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because just then, the Titans came in to check on Lilith and saw an enraged caveman standing over a bunch of beat-up scientists and an unconscious Lilith and immediately leapt to the wrong conclusion. They attacked Gnark. Damn it, Titans! Gnark beat the shit out of the Titans. I hate to say it, but hooray! Then he headed out into the hallway. Security guards confronted him and pointed their guns at him. They told him to surrender. The only problem was, no one gave this version of Gnark any Duolingo lessons, so he didn't understand a word of what they were saying. Gnark was like, Gnark! And the security guards shot him like 50 times. Gnark didn't die right away. He was in a coma and kept on life support for a while. Lilith never left his side for that entire indeterminate amount of time. The Titans came to visit and apologize. Lilith forgave them for their inadvertent role in Gnark's shooting, and told them what she had seen when she was rubbing his forehead and saying, Gnark! at him before everything went all sideways. It turned out that she had formed a deep psychic bond with Gnark and saw inside his memories. She learned that one night, about 50 or 60,000 years ago, Gnark was out for a walk when a meteor crashed right in front of him and a chunk of meteorite got lodged in his chest. The meteorite was magic and made him super-duper smart, but then a volcano he was standing near erupted. Oh no! The meteorite protected him against the lava by sealing him in ice, but then he was stuck inside the ice. He was conscious the whole time and kept getting smarter, figuring out how to cure all the diseases in the world, and a bunch of other stuff, too. For thousands of years, his mind reached out looking for someone occasionally psychic enough to communicate with him, but there was never anyone there, until, eventually, he sensed Lilith when she was taking that tour of Star Labs. In the few seconds that Lilith was psychically bonded with him, they fell in love, and Astrally made out, and maybe Astrally did some sex, which is weird, but also totally explains the face Lilith was making when she was doing that head rub thing. Soon after Lilith finished telling the gang about her time in Gnark's brain, Gnark finally succumbed to his wounds and died. The scientists tried analyzing the meteorite chunk, but when they did, it just looked like a regular rock. And that's the story of Gnark. Mal and Karen wrap up their story by heavily implying that Lilith stole Gnark's body out of the lab so that no one could dissect it. When they finish this tale of tragedy, heartbreak, and death, Sarah is like, Wow, you guys really suck at small talk, huh? The End like, I typed H-S-M-H-O-T-N. It's in Hopton? That's like the names that people have been sending me on that uh, scam email. Oh, really? Seriously, I got a name that, like, their made-up name had no vowels in it.
I'm like, well, Hasanai Hatumch, I don't believe you that you're a person. Have you engaged with any of these people? No. Okay, that's wise. I make it a practice to not engage with people who have names that are less real sounding than the Japanese programmed baseball teams from 80s baseball games. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that list of names? No, I haven't. I just said mm-hmm because it sounded like a, it would be a silly set of names. It is. My favorite on it is Bobson Dugnut. Bobson Dugnut. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty good. Okay, so here's the list of the names from, I think it's the early 90s Japanese baseball video game. Sleeve McDykel. <laughs> Onsen Sweemy. Hmm. Daryl Archideld. That one's close. That's almost a human man from Earth. Anatoly Smorin. Ray McSriff. <laughs> Glenn Allen Mixon. Mario McElwain. Oh man, our names must sound so silly. Raul Chamberlain. <laughs> Kevin Nogilny. Tony Schmerick. The aforementioned Bobson Dugnut. And that's Dugnut with two T's. Well, uh, of course. Yeah. Willie Dustis. Jerome Gride. Man. Scott Dork. <laughs> uh, that's D O U R Q U E. Oh, that's not Dorke. Shown Fur Coat. Dean Wesry. Mike Truck. That's the best one. T R U K. Yeah. Dwigt Wardigal. <laughs> <laughs> Dwig. Tim Sandiel. Carl Dandleton. <laughs> He's a real Dandleton. Mike Cernandez. Oh, so close. So close. And uh, Todd Gonzalez. <laughs> were they? Huh. Maybe they were worried that if you used a name that was an actual person's name, they'd have to pay royalties or something. And so they took real names and then they just randomly letters. changed one or two letters. It probably is something like that. But yeah, I think of that often. And Mike Truck and uh, Bobson Dugnut are just, they're in my head, man. All right, you ready? Yep. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hello. It's going just fine. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I made myself a Monte Cristo sandwich for lunch. That was pretty fun. Whoa, that is a commitment. It's easier than you'd think. Also, it wasn't like a real one because I'm not eating ham, but it had so it had turkey in it instead. But, uh, you know, French toast, turkey, some nice cheese, pretty tasty sandwich. I'll say. Did you put the powdered sugar on it? I did not put the powdered sugar on it. Hmm. So maybe I can't even really call it a Monte Cristo. So you had a turkey cheese French toast sandwich. I had a turkey cheese French toast sandwich. You're right. I don't want to, you know, denigrate the good name of the Count of Monte Cristo. Let's consider it. That guy had a hell of a legacy, huh? That's uh, known for meticulously plotted, intricate revenges and uh, French toast sandwiches. Hmm. Not bad. Two great tastes that taste great together. Yeah. Only one of the things he's known for, though, is a dish best served cold. Monte <laughs> Cristo better served hot as a sandwich. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You can give yourself a, a rim shot there. That's a pretty good one. Oh, thank you. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, why not? Corey, what did you think of this week's comic book? I may have 
said this about the last regular sized comic that we read, but it was kind of refreshing to have something. I was going to say not too complicated because it's not really complicated. It's easy to read through, but I don't know, kind of getting to the end, I'm just like, did we need to have this (laughs) experience? I kind of liked my memories of I'm John Gnark and I'm lost in the bowels of Jupiter Tower. I know what you mean. And in fact, that is the first note that I had written down for myself was, what is this story doing? And I don't really know, and I don't really know who it's for. It feels like a filler. And I think it is a filler. We just wrapped up a big story arc in New Teen Titans with uh, Donna Troy getting her origin retconned and all that shit. Then we got our Resetting the New Normal episode. And then we get this before we get into the next big story arc. And I think it is a filler. It has a different artist. It's not George Perez drawing it. It was a guy named Mark Bright. And I think he did a really good job for the most part. But I did get kind of the impression that, I don't know, like you ever have like a show that you're super into that you're watching with your significant other and then they're away or they don't want to watch something. So you're like, I guess I'll just watch an episode of this other show. This feels like whatever you watch while you're waiting for your significant other to get back so you can watch what you're excited about watching with them. Like there's no momentum to it. and. It's fine. It feels like a story that's, I don't know, kind of taken out of context for no particular reason, which is especially frustrating because the last issue in the series explicitly told us that it was going to transition to the next thing. It was called Transitions. And this is what we're transitioning to? A filler story? Yeah, I'm on on the same page. And thank you for thinking of me as your metaphorical significant other. (laughs) One thing I did like about this was we got to see more kind of hang out and story time. Like the the narrative structure of the story was cool because it was all done through flashback, I guess, as Bumblebee and Sarah Charles are having their chat. Yeah, I liked that part of it. Honestly, I think the bookends of the story worked better than the story itself. I did enjoy them all sitting down and having a chat. It did seem a little bit odd to me how similar the situations are between the only black characters in the book. Like, I understand there's going to be some parallels there, and they're trying to set up that there are some parallels between Karen and Mal and Sarah and Cyborg. But it struck me as a little bit odd how similar they were. It's like, I don't know, like the old 80s stand-up comics that would be like, black people drive like this, white people drive like this. Black people relationship like this. The lady will work at Star Labs in San Francisco. Well, the man will be on a superhero team in New York, and they will have some struggles trying to reconcile those situations, but eventually they will get together. It's like, okay, is that a stereotype I'm unfamiliar with? Yeah, no, I I had the (laughs) same thought, and I guess the only attempt to differentiate a little bit is Mal being like, Oh man, I'm so glad I'm not a hero anymore, and I'm just running this jazz passion project rock and roll pays the bills club. <laughs> yeah, it it is an odd entrepreneurship situation that he has found himself in at this point. I mean, he says that he's so glad not to be a hero anymore, but Karen brings up the fact that like, yeah, he's so over being a titan that sometimes he doesn't think about it for hours at a time. 
And that was one thing that I wasn't crazy about about the characterization of Mal in this comic is it really is reinforcing something that we weren't crazy about before, which is the idea that his presence on the Titans was almost a favor to him on the Titans part. Yeah. He is portrayed as a fairly incompetent hero who is super insecure, who is just happy to be there and so grateful for the opportunity to be considered a hero and worried that he's not good enough. And you know what? He's probably right. He probably isn't good enough. And that fucking sucked. Yeah, that was really driven home when he has this big accomplishment for the issue, which is lifting the frozen John Gnark out of the bottom of a lake with mm-hmm. his horn. And he's just dumbfounded <laughs> that he, was, he achieved success in doing that. Yeah, it's like, oh, I finally did something well. And I don't get why they are keeping that aspect of it. Like, Marv Wolfman clearly does not have the same affection for the 70s comics that it seems like George Perez had. Mm. And it makes sense that he wouldn't. It was a book that he was fired off of right before all of this stuff happens. And then also he's been writing the new version of it for the last decade almost at this point. So it makes sense that he wouldn't view that era of Titans with the same nostalgia, which is partly why it was, I think, unsatisfying to get a flashback episode of those comics. But if you're gonna change whatever you feel like wasn't working about that, why would that be the one aspect of it that you would keep? Mal's incompetence. You've changed most other things about him and so many other things about the team. Why hang on to that? Yeah, why indeed. That said, one theme throughout the issue that I did appreciate was how much people hate Hank. Like, Hawk is just shit on by everybody continually throughout the entire book. And that was, that tickled my funny bone. That was fun. And you can also see why everybody hates him so much, because they are really playing up what a jerk he is. And also just how bad he is at everything. One of the things that really didn't make sense to me that he was doing was at one point, he calls Speedy Wings. Mm -hmm. First of all, Wings is not a good insult when you yourself are named Hawk. And you're using it on a character who is one of the minority of characters on the team who is not named after a flying creature. (laughs) I counted. This version of the Teen Titans that they're hanging out with has six different characters who are either a bird or an insect. And you got Beast Boy, who does often change into birds. So potentially seven, six or seven. And he singles out Roy Harper and calls him Wings. I'm pretty sure that was a typo. I think that was supposed to be him arguing with Golden Eagle. But even if you are talking to Golden Eagle, you have a bird name. You don't get to give other people derogatory bird names. Well, you do. He did zing Golden Eagle pretty good when he called him Chicken Wing. It seems like that would apply more to Dove, though, where Dove is the one who's the peace guy. That's why it's a good zinger. You can really see that getting under Hank's skin. I ain't no chicken, you know? I mean, I'm a chicken, me personally, but Hank, Mm. no, sir. He does not see himself as a chicken. Uh Uh-uh. Me? Running away. Oh, absolutely. It's my superpower. Knocking chairs down behind me. It's a good power. I was thinking if I could have one superpower lately, it might just be having feet that don't get wet. Wouldn't that be nice? Huh. So just to, wait, to avoid the unpleasant feeling of after your feet get wet and waiting for them to dry and it's cold? I mean, that and socks. 
Just putting socks on wet feet or having your sock get wet and feeling it, it's the worst. Oh, wow. So with this superpower, you walk through your kitchen. Finley has dribbled some water and drool on the floor. You step on it with fresh pair of nice socks. Nothing happens. Yeah. Oh, that would be good. That is the most irritating feeling. Pretty good, huh? Or you get out of the shower. You're in a rush. You got to get dressed. You don't have to worry that your feet are still a little bit damp when you put on those socks. They just slide right on like they are made out of Teflon. Wow. That's a good one. In fact, I think, though, I would, I would double down on it, or I, I would say that it would be a whole body moisture control power. And it's not a great word. It sounds bad when you say it, but like the shower example, you, you just you get dressed. You don't have to worry about your socks, your undies, whatever. It really only bothers me with the socks, though, I think. You don't like putting on a shirt when you're still a little damp? No, I don't. I don't mind it, but I usually got, you gotta, you know, towel off real good. Sure. What if you're in a sure. hurry? Well, this superpower allows you to <laughs> just throw your clothes on. Heck, you could shower in those clothes if you wanted to and get Whoa. the clothes clean because you can kind of, you just get out and be like, I'm dry now. Boom. All right. Well, full, full body moisture control is pretty good, but if I have to choose, like, if I got like a super shitty genie, I'm going just feet. Just feet. Yeah, of, oh, of course. Or like if you get real nervous and <laughs> you get that, you know how when you're nervous and you sweat sometimes it has a different quality than regular? Mm-hmm. Like, it's bad. You could just be like, hey, I'm nervous as hell, but no stinky sweat. That is good. I feel like the fear sweat smell, you're right, it is a very specific smell. <laughs> and I've never been called on this, but I would hate it if like I was like encountering a tough guy and, and he was just like... <laughs> Smells like fear. And I would be like, no, it doesn't, but it would. I feel like I would feel the need to defend myself if somebody said that. I'd be like, yeah, but it's just sweat. I didn't pee myself. <laughs> That's what you're implying. Yes, I am afraid, but I'm not that afraid. It's just sweat. Not pee my pants afraid, sir. Yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> um, Hank's an asshole and bad at insults. Oh, uh, yeah, he sure is. So I was excited to see Gnark again, but then the whole story seems to be explaining who Gnark is, but also why it's not important who he is, because he was conscious at the same time as the Titans were for a grand total of like 15 seconds. Yeah. I don't know. So what's the point? Yeah, I started to talk earlier about how I feel like Marv Wolfman doesn't have the same nostalgia for this era of Teen Titans that George Perez does. And that, I feel like, is the main reason that I didn't enjoy this comic in the same way. I think I might have more if we hadn't just read George Perez's magnum opus that was uh, Secret Origins Annual Number 3. In a lot of ways, that book was not fully successful, but you knew what it was trying to do. It was trying to fit all of the pieces of these past Teen Titans stories, for which George Perez clearly had a lot of affection, try to fit those together with what he and Marv Wolfman had done later on. Yeah, it definitely had the feel of a, a love letter to the last quarter century of these characters. Right. And he paid so much attention to try to fit these disparate puzzle pieces, which had never fit together properly, into some semblance of sense that even when it didn't work, you were impressed by it, and it was a fun place to spend some time, for me anyway. Mm -hmm. With this, it seemed much less like that. This was more Marv Wolfman being like, oh, they did a story about a teenage caveman. Here's how I would do that. 
And it wasn't as fun. And also, it was the exact same story that he told with Zach Wingman and Lilith. It's like he's got the one Lilith story that he wants to do, and that's it. And so he just did it with Gnark instead of Zach Wingman. But pretty much the same thing. Unconscious, impossible person, frozen in ice. Lilith feels a telepathic bond with, frees him, and then the rest of the Titans attack him because she gets knocked out. Man, I forgot how many parallels there were with uh, Zack Wingman. Right, but we saw in the Secret Origins issue, Zack Wingman still exists post-crisis. So as Lilith just keeps repeating herself, I guess. Like, why, why do we need both of those stories? I wish they had just left Gnark in the past if they were only bringing him up to say, well, we're never bringing him up again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like also this idea of you got to have the bad guy always. That's like the 80s scientist who's really into vivisecting (laughs) people he shouldn't be. Yeah. Just in general. (laughs) Like, oh, we need to dissect this, whatever it is. No, you don't. He's just sleeping. Leave him alone. The bad guy scientist in this book has such a oscillating level of evilness that he is operating under. Sometimes he's like, oh, no, there was this was just a misunderstanding. I'm driven and I care about science, but I'm not that bad a guy. And then sometimes he's just like, give me a second. I'll grow a mustache so I can twirl it kind of evil. Like when he beans the other scientist over the head with a lead science pipe that I guess is lying around. Yeah, what the fuck? That came out of nowhere. And he's just like, sometimes you have to do what you want to get ahead. And then turns to his other, like, two science thug buddies. And is like, right, so I guess we need to kill these guys? And Lilith, too? Yeah, that escalated so quickly. I, I was left confused and a little bit amused. <laughs> by it because it was just so weird yeah it's like oh wait we're super evil now and we're a gang (laughs) science guys with pipes yeah his level of evil was one of the puzzle pieces that didn't fit in this story and that that was the other thing like not only was wolfman not interested in fitting this story into the puzzle pieces that were left to him by previous creators he started a new puzzle in this issue, and then didn't bother to fit those three pieces together. Like, I eventually was able to patch together a workaround of what was going on, kind of. But at first glance, it really did not hold together as a story. Like, Lilith and Bumblebee are walking through a corridor. Lilith gets some bad vibes, reports them to Robin, and then Robin takes them to Southeast Asia for some reason. Like, he didn't seem to know that they were going to encounter scientists there. It doesn't make sense because unless the chronology is all wackadoodle, maybe that's it. But so Lilith goes to Asia because she's getting psychic. Um, what's it called? It, like a dating app when like, somebody's like giving you a uh, like a wave or a, a kiss or a hello or something. She's getting those from Gnark from under the ice. Right. She's like, Robin, you got to go there. But what precedes that is what you described, which is what happens later, right? When he's trapped in the Star Labs. Or was there a different... Do you think Zach Wingman was in there? Oh, maybe. So she's getting vibes out of this room that there's nothing going on in yet. It's before, like, they've opened it. Like, they're just strolling through the corridor. Am I getting the order confused? Was it a flashback within a flashback when they went down there? Because I thought she was getting weird vibes. She asked Robin to investigate, and then Robin took them to Southeast Asia. 
No, you're right. But they never explain why the weird vibes are coming out of that room. Maybe they had a Ganark transmitter. Maybe, or maybe she was getting like psychic premonitions that something shitty was going to happen in that room. It was confusing and it didn't really make sense. And I don't know why Robin brought them all to that place. So Lilith told them to go to that place? I'm pretty sure. Okay, I thought she just asked Robin to investigate these vibes that she was having, and he was like, I did some snooping and we should go to this place. Because what it says is, Lilith told Robin, that's Nightwing before he changed his name, what she had felt, so he did some investigating, and next thing we knew, we were in the jungles of Southeast Asia. (laughs) So they're there as the result of Robin's investigation, but when he gets there, it is clear that he has no idea what's going on, or who the people down there are. You're forgetting, he's trained by the world's greatest, he's the world's greatest detective. He's the world's greatest detective? I think, I think I'm, after he figured this out, I'm... He's graduated. (laughs) But he didn't figure out anything. He didn't know what was going on down there. Just something. So the way that they found Gunark was by flying the helicopter in ever smaller circles till Lilith said this is where he's at. It's highly unlikely he did that around the entire planet to get there. I think he he just knew. He did some detecting and he's like, I gotta go to this lake in Vietnam or Thailand or wherever it is. That's some good detective work. Impossibly good. It very much reminds me of the, well, you're a little light on the details, but okay. I guess we're just getting Mal and Karen's perspective on this, but he did some investigating, and next thing we knew, we were in the jungles of Southeast Asia, and there's 12 fucking titans in a helicopter. I don't know what their plan was. I don't know what the scientists' plans were when beefy scientists with no sleeves got out giant predator-sized guns and started shooting at the helicopters to not hurt them. Oh my gosh, that is one of my favorite parts of... <laughs> I should have had that for the timestamp. I think I called him Magnum P.I., scientist because he's got kind of a tom Selleck vibe yeah well he's got a mustache his profile looks tom Selleck-y to me wait which guy are you talking the guy with a giant gun or the yeah, uh... yeah white shirt no sleeves giant machine gun okay maybe it's just the size of the machine gun but i was getting more like jesse ventura from predator vibes from that guy as he was firing non-lethal mortar shells directly at a helicopter it's there are just so many mistakes that were made in that entire sequence. Like, what do you do? You're doing secret science stuff, and some helicopter shows up with a bullhorn and says, "Attention, we are friends. We just want to land and ask you some questions." Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, it's claim jumpers," which they don't really explain what they mean by that. And so we just thought we'd scare them off. Okay. They're bad scientists. But at that point, I believe the main bad guy scientist who is later hitting other scientists over the head with a wrench is the one who specifically directs, make sure nobody gets hurt. Just scare them off. With that giant machine gun. And then later he's like, well, we've got a living caveman for the first time in history. Let's chop him up. And sell the giant rock in his chest. Yep. Science. Yeah. They mention that the giant rock that is, I guess, given Gnark his immortality and super intellect that will let him cure every disease in the world if they don't shoot him. And make the world a paradise. Ah, there's that paradise again. I don't think I like Marf Wolfman's version of paradise. Whenever he mentions paradise, what you get is a dead teen. (laughs) (laughs) That's unsettling. 
If you are ever hanging out with 1980s Marv Wolfman and he mentions the word paradise, get the fuck out of there. Yeah, stuff's going to go sideways. Specifically in a way that results in dead teens. But back to Ganark's meteorite. That rock, they mentioned that there have been a couple of other cavemen who have found rocks like that. Did you get what they were alluding to there? I really felt like I should. Is that something that took place in what we've read? Not in what we've covered. I don't think we've seen this character, but they're talking about a guy named Vandal Savage. And at this point in Marvel continuity, his character had been retconned to have a counterpart uh, that was Immortal Man, who was a superhero who previously had been unaffiliated with Vandal Savage, but Marv Wolfman actually did a rewrite of the character, which changed his origin so that him and Vandal Savage were both cavemen and they found a magic stone. And it made Vandal Savage an immortal caveman fascist who loved murder and was super smart and has been continually alive since caveman times. And Immortal Man keeps dying and getting reincarnated with all of his memories. Vandal, like somebody who spray paints on bus stops? Uh, I think I think more like the Vandals and the Visigoths type of thing. But yeah, I don't think he's above spray paint, certainly. But I don't think that was what it was attempting to evoke. Oh, man. That's some good history there. Sounds like he could uh, be a 1980s uh, NES baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Vandal Savage versus Bobson Dugnut. Through a pitcher's duel. Yeah. We'll see what uh, Mr. Truck has to say about that. The characters' reactions and the way they describe Ganark seem to be wanting to have it both ways both having this be his only appearance and making him a completely insignificant character to the Titans with the exception of Lilith, but kind of banking on the nostalgia that some readers are going to have for the character. Mal and Karen both describe when they first meet Gunark, they're like, we didn't yet know what he would become. And at that point, he wasn't important to us. It really implying that later on, they're going to change their tune about this guy. That's like three pages before the comic ends and two pages before he gets shot to death by scientists. It's almost like Wolfman forgot that he was going to kill him a few pages later. And it was just like, oh yeah, he was around for a while. It was very confusing to me also. The whole comic book has that kind of feel. It's not fully written by Marf Wolfman. It is a story by George Perez that is then drawn by Mark Bright and then is scripted by Wolfman. So he's filling in the bubbles, and at various points in the comic, you almost do get the impression that he hadn't read ahead and looked at the panels that were coming up. And so he set that up, and then he's like, oh, then Gnark dies. Ooh, um, okay. We'll just, we'll just leave that. I'm not going to go back and change those things that I filled in. I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about this story for a number of reasons. One of the bigger ones is the dangerous Aqualad erasure that happens in this issue. Goes out of his way to say that Aqualad was never a full-time member of the Teen Titans. Yeah, that was some bullshit, man. And with the whole reason being just because he'll die if he's not in the water, he can drink a fucking glass of water. Yeah. We would often bring up when we were doing the Teen Titan Wasteland and covering the original adventures, like, it's a shame Atlantean technology has not yet developed the bucket. Yeah. Or canteen. Nice thermos. Exactly. The point is, 
he could hang out with them. It's ridiculous to say that, oh, he has to have water every hour so he could never come on any adventures with us. He couldn't be a full-time member. Are they also saying that Aquaman was never a full-time member of the Justice League? What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. That's funny. When I read that, I, I was like, I'm not going to like that. <laughs> My hackles were up. It also makes me wonder if Wolfman may have been the person spearheading the campaign to get Aqualad out of the book the first time. Because when Aqualad initially took off on a hiatus to go babysit Aqua Baby indefinitely, that was not in a book written by Marv Wolfman and Len Wein, but it was one issue after they had taken over the series. And incidentally, one issue before they were fired off of it. But they wrote issue 18 of the book, and then Mike Friedrich wrote the issue that ended with Aqualad taken off to Atlantis, and then Wolfman and Ween were supposed to come back to the book for an extended run, starting with issue 20, but that was the book that they tried to introduce a black superhero in, and Carmen Infantino shut that down. I'm wondering if it was Marf Wolfman's plan to get Aqualad out of the book. I think it probably was. Maybe I'm being a conspiracy theorist here, but uh, my little my little pieces of red yarn are connected to some pictures here. That's all I'm saying. Well, just get on YouTube and start doing some research. Will do. Sure, ev- everything will fit together <laughs> nicely. Follow the money. Uh-huh. Down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Ganark being a super genius who can cure all the diseases and everything because he's been awake and frozen in ice for how many how many years your figure this is 100,000 uh i don't know the math on that but it's been a super long time i think that's bullshit of course because it's not like the longer you think about something the better you figure it out without any other external <laughs> stimulus or information unless that comet tail gemstone is like a super aggregator of information that it just goes out into the world and brings it all back in your brain and makes you super smart. Maybe. That's the only explanation. I guess. Yeah, I, I too didn't really get the idea of like, so because he's been conscious for a long time, he's a super genius who knows everything. But also, despite being a super genius who knows everything about everything, because he's just been thinking about it by himself for a really long time, he also is a raving lunatic caveman who behaves the way that we would expect a caveman to and attacks everybody as soon as he wakes up. And only can say one word, which is his name. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he's a Pokemon. It was funny when uh, Lilith was like, I sense you saying the word Gnark. How about this? Listen to me say Gnark. <laughs> and that is what brings him out of it. Yeah. I guess in addition to being psychic, Lilith has read her Dale Carnegie and knows that everyone's favorite word is the sound of their own name. But it's not, I feel like, in general, the best move to have your safe word be your name. <laughs> I think if we did a Hulk's Rules this issue, that's probably where we'd end up landing. Yeah, that is a good one. And we get the fact at the end that I guess Lilith stole Gnark's corpse, maybe. But we are told that, but we'll never know for sure, the end. (laughs) Move along. Yep. Okay. I guess maybe she's a corpse thief. Fair enough. Yeah. Lilith doesn't come out of this one unscathed, I feel like. No, and... 
it's odd that there isn't more credence given to her suffering by the other Titans. Like, Karen apparently continued to work for Star Labs that whole time, despite all of this shit that they did. And I think she goes on to say, like, well, you know how Lilith's been about trusting big science companies ever since that incident, and you can understand why. It's not just big science companies. It's that specific science company and that branch of that science company. It is the West Coast branch of Star Labs that was doing all this shit. Mm -hmm. Like, and there's no sanction against that organization on any of the Titans part, except for it seems like Mal has some hard feelings about it. But maybe that's just because he is resentful of his wife working with the West Coast Teen Titans, which is, I think, the big thing that we are supposed to take away from this issue, that they are planning on doing a West Coast Teen Titans that Star Labs is going to run. Yeah, that was a, another weird angle of it where like we we know now from the annual that we read that Titan Tower is ostensibly financed by Star Labs through Silas Stone, you know, conditional to that they let Vic hang out with them. Mhm. And so I guess it would make sense that the West Coast version would also be run by the same company, but that's creepy as fuck having a super powered team of heroes who have the power to kill people be financed by a shady for-profit organization. It is unsettling, and it's also kind of unclear whether Star Labs is a private company. Because, like, it seems like they are, but then you do have the big evil scientist saying that you don't have the right to tell this to civilians. It's like, wait, are you not civilians? Yeah, that was also confusing. And that's what that makes it sound like it's a government organization. But I think it's private enterprise and they just have some really big government contracts and then kind of went to went to their heads. OK, so they're like uh, they're like a Raytheon type company or Blackwater. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck those guys. I don't want them to set up a Teen Titans team. No, I don't know. There's more to talk about, but I think most of what I wanted to bring up is probably going to come up in the minutia. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we move that way? Oh, let's move that way. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us that way? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what, uh, what category you want to start us off with? Oh, man. There were so many insults. Almost too many to keep track of. Are you saying you think we should take this party to the... Bozone? Yes. Yes, I am. All right, then. What insults in this comic do you feel were most worthy of note? Oh. Well, as that rap air horn and that garbage scow are informing us, <laughs> we got some natty bees in this issue. That's a fun noise. Thank you. Reminds me of Tugboat. Double natty bee. Yeah, I was able to count two of them. You came up with two as well? I did. It's on pages 21 and 22. Mal, I believe, refers to Gnark as that poor bozo, talking about how confused he must be in a very odd piece of dialogue, I felt. 
He says, remember, this poor bozo was frozen long before Swanson made their first TV dinner. But he leads up to that by saying, here he was battling green apes and a black woman with stingers shooting out of her eyes. Odd to point out Bumblebee's race at that point. I don't think if a lady with stingers shooting out of her eyes is flying at me, my first thought is going to be, a black lady with stingers shooting out of her eyes? Well, now I've seen it all. Yeah. yeah Especially that's... as a caveman who existed really before the concept of race, I would think. Yeah. No, that seemed unnecessary. But yes, describing Ganark as that poor bozo definitely qualifies for the bozone. And it's not the only time Ganark is called a bozo in this issue, because to follow up on the next page... Bunch of scientists wearing bad The Phantom costumes show up and say, Freeze, bozo, you're covered. And then they all shoot him to death because he says Gnark at them. In addition to the Natty Bees, did you have any other insults you wanted to bring up for the Bozone? On page two, we have Mal saying Hank would be a terrible leader because he's bad. On page four, we have Karen saying she wants to just forget about him because he's awful. I liked those. People making fun of Hank, saying he's a real piece of shit. Yep. Yeah, those were pretty good. I had the chicken wings that uh, Hank uses to insult. Uh, That one was Golden Eagle, so that one kind of makes sense. It certainly makes more sense than when he calls Speedy Wings. He also tells him to shut up and molt. Thought that was a pretty good zinger for a bird guy. And we also have Robin telling the scientists to take your threats and spin on them. Yeah, yeah, that really zinged them. You can, that scientist looks shocked. Well, I mean, the implication is they are going to take their threats and have to put them up their bottoms and then spin around to get better pleasure from them. And he is understandably shocked by that. Yeah. He doesn't want to put their threats up their bottom. I was surprised that that came out of Robin's mouth. He's normally just making more kind of gentle puns. Well, he he was a surly teen at this point, probably showing off for Flamebird, you know? Yeah. I liked also the exchange between Kid Flash and, and Hank, where Kid Flash basically says to him he's brainless, and then the rejoinder to that is Hawk calling Kid Flash a speed wimp. I liked that, too. Pretty good. You ever watch Happy Days? Yeah, I think I've seen a couple episodes back in the day. I mean, you remember how, like, the big insult on that was people telling each other to sit on it? No. That was the big thing. Different characters would be like, hey, sit on it. It took me a while to realize. I, I think the, the implication there was, was also that they would be putting things up their bottom. Like, would that be, would sit on it be something that would be accompanied by a middle finger generally, do you think? Oh. I think it was, but then they took the middle finger out of the equation, but then just uh, left it as a generalized, hey, go put things in your bottom. Uh-huh. That's yeah, a weird thing for Happy Days to do. <laughs> sure is. I don't, I don't like Mr. C telling me to put something in my bottom. Yeah, that's not for him to think about. No, that's none of your business, Mr. C. What goes into or comes out of my bottom is none of your concern, Tom Boswell. I don't want to hear you talk about it. Tom Bosley? Boswell? Bosley. Tom Bosley. Is T-Boz, do you think, from TLC, (laughs) named after Tom Bosley? No. Was was she just a big Tom Bosley? Why else is she named T-Boz? 
I don't know, but that's not, that's, I can't imagine that being it. I think she was just a big Father Dowling fan. It's just change it to a Z to sound cooler. It's tougher, yeah. You, you don't have time to say the whole Bosley. Wow. No, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I somehow <laughs> don't think that's it. But, you know, we'll never know. Yeah, fair enough. So there was just one other diss in there, too, which is kind of a subtle one. But uh, on page 13, Mal disses the entire state of New Jersey. No, just Newark, I believe. Oh, is it just Newark? He, he specifically calls out Newark, New Jersey, which I'm actually going to use that as a segue into the timestamp category. So for timestamps, I actually had Mal Duncan calling out Newark, New Jersey. I feel like even two or three years prior to that, the slightly racist diss that you would use to make fun of a city, the go-to would have been either Detroit or Cleveland. But I think late 80s, that particular kind of diss had moved on to be Newark, New Jersey. But like I remember in like the Kentucky Fried movie and stuff like or from that era, there, there was just this implication that financially distressed big cities generally with large black populations were viewed as horrifying, horrifying places. Which is why when Mal is describing how his teleportation is inconsistent, he says that it could teleport him into the heart of the sun or even worse, Newark, New Jersey. I feel like a few years earlier, that same reference would have been applied to a different city. So I think that counts as a timestamp. Yeah, interesting. I'll allow it. What other timestamps were you able to come up with? I had, a, I can't remember who, somebody referring to Gnark is, they're talking about the fight between Gnark and Dove has just picked up Lilith. And the caption is, the one guy in the Titans who wouldn't harm a crippled cockroach. And Captain Caveman goes after him like Rambo after the commies. Hmm. And the Rambo after the commies thing seemed pretty spot on for the section of the 80s. This was it's it's true, because in the first Rambo movie, he is going after small town sheriffs. And so by the it would this would be like a Rambo three era. Yeah. And there is also the Captain Caveman reference, which I think that was an older cartoon, but it's not the only Hanna-Barbera cartoon that gets brought up because previously he is described by Beast Boy as being Fred Flintstone. Which, not a very specific timestamp. The Flintstones was from the 60s, and, you know, it was on in various iterations and reruns, I think, throughout the 80s. But uh, you do get Beast Boy running into Gnark's butt as a giant ram and saying, it'll keep Fred Flintstone here off guard so I can butt his butt, but good. I'm glad that you brought that up. I had also noted the butt his butt, but good. Mm Mm-hmm. For other timestamps, we have when they roll up into the super science encampment with the uh, predator guns and whatnot. You do have, I believe it is Kid Flash, describe it as having more science things than a George Lucas movie, which is setting the flashback story, I think, more when George Lucas movies were coming up. So I think what was initially a 70s Teen Titans adventure is now due to sliding timelines and whatnot being placed in the mid 80s. So that would be like probably around when Empire Strikes Back here, maybe. Uh, I, I think it would be more Return of the Jedi or possibly one of the later Indiana Jones movies, maybe a Temple of Doom or something. But either way, you get a George Lucas reference there. I don't yep. think it was talking about American graffiti with that, but okay. maybe. Who knows? 
You also do have, I think I mentioned the Swanson's frozen dinner line. TV dinners certainly weren't new at the time, but I feel like the late 80s might have been one of the last times you would have TV dinners be a very standard comedic reference. I think that was the last gasp before that as a joke was totally played out. Had the ZZ Top song, too. What song's that? Didn't they have a song about TV dinners? I don't know. Is that what Sleep Inside Your Sleeping Bag was about? <laughs> Hold on. I, that, I fear I fear I have just made something up. Is is that what the song Pearl Necklace was about? Because I felt <laughs> like that was a metaphor for something, but I couldn't quite figure out what. Was it about TV dinners, Corey? TV dinners is a is a ZZ Top song. Okay. That's four minutes and twenty-five seconds long. Good to know. The other kind of more nebulous timestamp that there was is as Mal is giving his big speech to himself, giving himself the little pep talk about how I'm going to blow on this horn. That is my superpower that does something and it'll be either good or bad, but I can't predict what it'll do, which not a great superpower. He says, well, I'll either be the hero or the goat. And I feel like if you said that now, goat has a different meaning. I keep forgetting that the goat used to be kind of short for like scapegoat or person that everybody hates. You see it in a lot of old like Peanuts, Charlie Brown comic strips. Like he's talking about how he'll be the goat if he loses the game. Whereas now I feel like goat is almost exclusively used as the acronym for greatest of all time. And that was my confusion with it too. I, I had to actually do a search on that because I didn't have literary reference for it being used charlie browner otherwise mm. yeah turns out that was the thing people used to say all the time yeah I, f I feel like the greatest of all time i feel like that started getting used regularly after the ll cool j album but i might be wrong mm. Corey, every Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans and also a Beast Boy the worst of Teen Titans in this issue, who'd you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? So, starting with the Aqualad, you know, Mal did free Gnark, but he also got Donna shot mm. by a cannon. So I guess he's out. You know what? Let's mix things up and give this to Speedy, because he rescued everybody on that helicopter with his net arrow, and now Robin owes him a fancy dinner. Uh-huh. He's going to go to that place in France. Uh-huh. Not the one with the hole in the wall. The other place in France. Yeah, where the uh, bubbly water starts at the, in the three figures. Good for Speedy on that. I actually was more kindly disposed towards Roy after that exchange than I generally am towards him as a character. He did a good job shooting that arrow and saving everybody from crashing out of the helicopter. I think that's a solid choice. It's one that I almost went with, but we so rarely have the opportunity to award the Aqualad prize to Aqualad, and he did do a good job of keeping those scientists from escaping, despite never having been a full-time Teen Titan. I don't know if you can hear this, but uh, <laughs> I'm giving the middle finger as loud as I can right now. <sighs> I decided to go with Aqualad as my Aqualad, but I did appreciate speedy taking advantage of his very wealthy teammate yeah nice i was tempted to go with aqualad too very hard to balance on the head of two dolphins indeed conversely for my beast boy i had a couple that were in contention i ultimately went with hawk 
but I nearly went with Dove for pretty similar reasons. Hawk was just a real piece of shit. He also did a very bad job insulting Speedy by calling him Wings when he himself is named after a winged creature and Speedy is not. And the thing that he and Dove both did that was super shitty was when they were jumping out of the helicopter, they didn't change into their superhero forms and get the enhanced strength and speed. It seems like that would be the time. They instead changed into Hawk and Dove by saying their names immediately after they crashed into the net. What the fuck were they thinking? Yeah, that's a good point. It seems like bad timing. And you know, I think I'm going to go back on what I said, because despite the fact that they were both shitty and Hawk was overall the bigger asshole, Dove did one of the more fucked up things in this comic book. It is a small moment, but it is on page eight when they are attacking the team of scientists in Southeast Asia. I mean, it really speaks to the Titans policy in general at that point, but they're rushing around, they're using their superpowers to beat up all the scientists, and Dove points out, he's like, uh, guys, they're definitely not locals. So basically he's saying, you guys, they're white. Mm -hmm. And Bumblebee responds by saying, don't worry, Dove, I'm just stunning them. Mm -hmm. Implying very heavily that if they were native Southeast Asians, all bets are off. Yep, that's uncomfortable for sure. And maybe it's not entirely fair to put all of that on Dove, but bad job. He gets my beast boy. I had Hank. I didn't catch the the Dove thing. That was pretty gross. But uh, yeah. He did a bad job. He was a jerk to everybody. Ed Robin is the runner-up. His plan was terrible. What plan? Show up in a helicopter, yell at everybody, they get mad, and then attack them. And also ditch the helicopter. Like, have them blow up the helicopter. Also, the scientists trying to not hurt them and scare them off by blowing up the helicopter. They survived because they had a super archer with a magic arrow with them. Otherwise, they would all be dead. Yep. Bad plan. Yeah, everybody in this comic did a bad job. Pretty much. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this comic book do you feel were worthy of highlight? Sarah Charles. Pink shirt, tiny suspenders, skinny tie, tucked into mom jeans with some white sneakers. It is a weird look. It is very 80s. And she rocks it. I like it. I also enjoy Karen Beecher's, or possibly Karen Duncan at this point. I don't know if she took on Mal's name when they married, but I like her mini skirt power suit that is uh, aquamarine. Interesting look. Dove wears a couple of interesting sweater vests in this issue in his Donald Hall. Oh, he usually goes by Don Hall, but he's Donald Hall. Corey, did this guy write the ox cart, man? I don't know what that is. Uh, it's a children's book about a man who had an ox cart. Oh, named Donald Hall? No, we don't know what the ox cart's name was. The guy who wrote the book was named Donald Hall, though. Yeah, that's what I meant. Oh, okay. I don't think Dove wrote that book, but it is interesting. I've just never called him Donald before. Presumably, that is what Don is short for. But later on, when they are in the helicopter, he is wearing a more interesting, in my mind, sweater vest which looks like it connects to his pants, and it also looks like it is maybe orange, like, padded quilts. I think it's probably supposed to be argyle, but it got 
colored in all the same color of orange. And so it does make it look like it is a padded quilt. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I liked it. I, I thought of it as like a, an early L.L. Bean or Patagonia type <laughs> super fancy thing. I do not like it as well as I like his brother's shirt, though. His brother is wearing a cool super 80s sweatshirt that is just maroon and white and has red shoulders and sleeves and a white chest. And it's just cool looking. And I dig it. Indeed. It's a good look. Yeah. Hawk's a real piece of shit, but he's a snappy dresser. We have talked before about Golden Eagle's outfit. It does not look as good in this issue as it did. It is one, I believe, suffering from George Perez syndrome. I guess the only time George Perez actually drew it in the previous issue was in the who's who section at the end. But uh, the elaborate headdress on Golden Eagle's uniform is done kind of inconsistently in this issue. And there is one specifically on page five. It's got this thing where... Above his nose is an eagle's head facing off to one direction. And then the like eyebrows are kind of the eagle's wings heading up. But it is drawn in a way that, I don't know, it's got red jeweled eye coverings that are part of the eagle design. On that page to me, for whatever reason, I think it's because of the little triangles at the top of it. It looks like it is just an eagle with enormous breasts that are in a bikini. (laughs) (laughs) oh that's goofy so he's just wearing a real chesty eagle visor and uh it's just a weird look also there's a lot of eagles in that eagle because like overall he is golden eagle so he is meant to look like an eagle he's got a tiny eagle on his visor and then he also has the chest emblem that is an eagle that goes out and covers his whole chest kind of like nighthawks it is a very eagle heavy look yeah maybe a little too much I think so. Any other fashion? The only other one I had was kind of nondescript compared to all that other stuff, but Mal looks pretty cool at the beginning. He's got a a white shirt, unbuttoned collar with some skinny suspenders tucked into his pants. Really Hmm. dapper. A dapper look. It it is a good look. I also wanted to real quick point out the scientist that gets hit over the head by the bad guy scientist with the super science lead pipe at the end of the book, uh, is wearing some action science jeans as part of his scientist look. I like that. I think that he it gives him a more down-to-earth scientist look than the rest of the scientists. So you feel a little bit worse for him when he gets beamed over the noodle. Yep. Who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? So... It's a little bit unfair to give it to Lilith because she's experiencing some heavy emotions, but she does that. Is it when Harry met Sally, the movie where Meg Ryan does the restaurant orgasm thing? It is. Yeah. She kind of does that when she's hanging out with John Canark. They zoom in on her face and it's like, whoa, lady. Yeah. When she is grabbing his forehead and saying, Gnark. She's like, let me say your name aloud to you, and that'll really get you going. You see the other scientists up in the room are just being like, that isn't right. And it's so intense that it explodes the lab. (laughs) So, I mean, congrats. Like, but uh, I don't know, a little over the top. A little bit. And I was honestly surprised that one of the evil scientists didn't actually say, I'll have what she's having. (laughs) Right. For my 
president of the drama club, I went with Mal Duncan for the opening scene when he is playing jazz music that he freely acknowledges no one there wants to hear (laughs) because it is a rock club, but he likes jazz music. And so he is going to play it for a captive audience before the band takes the stage or the dance music starts or whatever. Reminded me of, have we talked about the owner of the Knicks, James Dolan, on the show? I don't recall. He is a piece of shit who has a terrible blues rock band called JD and the Straight Shot. He is a a very wealthy man, and he books his band that nobody likes to open for bands that people are going to see. So he has booked his own band to open for like the Eagles and um, and ZZ Top, among many other bands, and has gotten their music used in various soundtracks for companies that he is pr- the producer for. But they are apparently really, really terrible. Their fifth album sold in the first eight months that it was released, 116 copies. Oof, that's not many. No, it is not. I have sold more albums than this man, and I can assure you I have never opened for ZZ Top. <laughs> Did open for Vanilla Ice one time, though. Just I saying. I was there. I was there. And I feel like Mal is pulling a move kind of like that. Give me just a second. I want to find there's a review of JD in the straight shot I want to share with you. Okay. James Dolan sings like he's trying not to cough, and it's possible that he can't play the guitar. Worse, his songs belie his status as a cosplaying blues man. Most of his lyrics simply summarize current events or books that he's read as if he were presenting a 10th grade English class project. Ouch. <laughs> kind of makes me want to listen to it. <laughs> it kind of does me too. So yeah, I had Mal Duncan as my president of the drama club for displaying these uh, James Dolan-esque tendencies. Although, frankly, I do think Mal Duncan would probably do a better job running a basketball team than James Dolan has. For one thing, I don't believe Mal Duncan would ever get into a public feud with Charles Oakley. No? No. Too sensible for that. Corey, let's have ourselves a Battle of the Band Names! What band names were you able to find in the text of this comic book? My first entry for Battle of the Band Names is a, I guess they're a power trio that play really fast, hard rock, and they're called Speed Wimp. Corey, I also had Speed Wimp. Oh my gosh. So I guess that's probably the one that we're going with, unless there's some more overlap here. I saw them as, I don't know, like, thrash shoegaze? (laughs) Like... (laughs) Like speed, but not metal, like speed weezer, something like that. Speed weezer. Oh, man. Like, yeah, just really, really fast, introspective, navel gazing music. I like it. Well, it looks like we're probably going with speed wimp unless we have some other overlap here, which is possible. Uh, did you have narrowing spiral? I did not, but I like the sound of it. Yeah, I didn't really figure out exactly what kind of music they are. Probably uh, like a more depressing Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. I also had uh, A1 Badges. Hmm. I don't know what they are. That just sounded like a band to me. What else you got? Uh, I had two other entries. One is Some Strange Feeling. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, I think they're some kind of moody music, too. 
yeah, kind of ethereal. Mm-hmm. Like maybe some moody blues. <laughs> no. And then uh, my, my final entry is, uh, I think they're just basically a, a Guar ripoff. And they're uh, all capitals. Ganark! <laughs> <laughs> ah, Ganark is a good name for a band. With an exclamation point, of course. Well, of course, of course. Nobody ever mutters Ganark. I mean, you don't have an exclamation point. How are you going to get that uh, that sweet, sweet Lilith face going? Exactly. You got to mean it. But we have an accord, and by our arbitrary rules that we have set up and decided to abide by, we have no choice but to go with Speedwimp as this week's winner. Sounds good. Corey, as we've discussed, uh, pretty good art in this, not... George Perez, but still certainly a lot to like from uh, M.D. Bright, who uh, is maybe a little bit better known by the nickname Doc because uh, of a little pun that his first two initials are M.D. That's a fun nickname. He did some milestone comics in the 90s later on that I ended up liking a lot. What was your favorite panel in this book? One of the things I enjoyed about Doc's art a lot was the consistency in which the uh, faces were drawn and how expressive they were. Mm-hmm. There is one panel I thought did a, a great job capturing that, and that's on page 16. I called it, Karen, are you all right? I don't know. It's just it's interesting. There's a, a lot going on. The characters are kind of looking at the reader, and um, Karen's sort of looking off into space past you, trying to figure out what's, what's bugging her. Oh, yeah, that is pretty good. And I do like Bumblebee's costume a lot. It didn't come up in the sartorially speaking, but uh, it's a good look. I think every version of her costume I have liked. I I just think bees are neat looking. And so if you're going to have a bee-themed costume, pretty good. I don't like that she doesn't shoot the stinger out of her butt anymore, though. That's a shame. It is. It's too bad. That is a really nice panel. And I also really like the expression that Flamebird has in that panel as well. I think... My favorites are on page three. There's a close up of Lilith's face that she just has like a very pensive look on her face. It is when she is first getting the completely nonsensical psychic impression that something is going to happen in a room that hasn't been set up yet. But it's a cool looking picture and I like her eyebrows in it, too. It's nice. Yeah, it's well done. I also really like there's a flame bird kick that is a flame bird kicking Ganark in the face that I really enjoy that is on page 21. Yep, that was a good one too. Just a nice action scene. And man, I just flipped by Lilith's head massage orgasm face and wow. (laughs) Pretty good. Wow. Overacting a little bit, maybe. Maybe a little bit. Speaking of overacting, I also do really like on the first page Mal Duncan just finishing his jazz set and as he is apologizing to the crowd for playing he just has both of his hands in the air pumping his fist in victory i will say when i read that panel first i was very confused because i didn't yet know that he owned the nightclub and he's saying i've trapped you here listening to the boss long enough and i was like wait was bruce springsteen there yeah yeah that confused me as well yes thinking it was a Springsteen reference, maybe. It was not. But yeah, I like that panel a lot where he's just like doing the fist pump of like, I'm sorry. <laughs> not sorry. <laughs> I think my favorite panel is on 21, page 21, and I called it Flying Cave Ninja. 
Ooh. Do you know the one I'm speaking of? I do know the one you're talking about. It's the one with the R. Yeah. It's John Gunnark launching himself human cannonball style into a bunch of scientists. Mm-hmm. They're freaking out. One guy's saying, get him away from me. And the other guy's <laughs> saying, he's going crazy. Yep. And I mean, you know, they've got a good point. The weird science thugs that are back in Roderick Buckfuller's. What was it? Um, Buckminster. Okay. Is that a Buckminster Fuller reference? If it is, I don't care for it because I think geodesic domes are quite nice and I don't like that they named a jerk after him. No, I don't think that Bucky Fuller would beam anybody over the dome with a science-led pipe. Nor I. Bad job, comic book. Any other panels you wanted to bring up? That was it. Okay, well then, Corey, I think we're just about done here. All right. We do not have to speculate as to what Aqualad was up to while this adventure was taking place, as we see what he was up to, wrangling up some science jerks in Southeast Asia, and having his contributions to the Teen Titans be diminished. Yep. Boo! Yeah, I think you mean... (laughs) That's what I think of that. I'm so torn on that, because yeah, it does kind of sound like a boo, but it also makes me think of the pro wrestler tugboat, and that makes me happy. Okay, let's try this one. Ah! (laughs) Ah! Corey. Yep. Are you okay? I I heard a horse... (laughs) In the background there. I'm, I'm good. Corey, have you ever seen the show Benson? Yes. I watched some Benson recently because the place that we're staying at has the Benson channel or something remarkably similar what? to it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how cable works these days, but there's basically a Benson channel. Wow. And so I watched a bunch of episodes of Benson, including the first episode of Benson. And, and Corey... That show is way weirder than I remembered. I remember it being pretty fucking weird. I had forgotten that it was a spinoff of the show Soap. So there are some like almost surreal moments in the very early episodes. My favorite of which is the governor, who is really funny in the show. We find out why he is a single father who is a widow. And that is because his late wife was killed by horses. Oh, that's awful. Oh, it gets better. When he says, oh, she was killed by horses, Benson says, trampled. And the governor says, no, eaten. Oh, come on. She was eaten by horses because they were going to a Christmas play or something. She was dressed as a sugar plum fairy and they had used real sugar cubes. And so horses ate the governor's wife. And that is a throwaway joke, but a character establishing throwaway joke in the first episode of Benson, which I kind of uh, uneven, a little bit uncomfortable in some ways in terms of uh, some of the racial stuff, because it is the early, early 80s, late 70s when it came out. And, uh, you know, it's a different time when everybody was terrible. Right. But uh, some really solid stuff in there, including... Yes, the governor's wife was eaten to death by horses. Oh my god, I am never going around horses if I have sugar on me. That's a wise policy. I would uh, say it's also just a wise policy to never go around horses. Mm-hmm. They're just hideous beasts made of spun sugar and bad intentions. 
They're fragile and deadly and terrifying. Damn. If you would like to get into touch with us, we could be reached at Titan Up the Defense. Titan Up the Defense. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I was thinking about horses and my voice cracked out of fear. Defend. Defend. <laughs> Defense. We could be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically, can you imagine, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on various parts of the socials media, so you can find us hanging out there. We're on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and linkedin and sea captains only all the places you would expect to find a podcast about comic books if you follow me on twitter i recently posted a picture of a uh, local art gallery called the purple starfish oh. <laughs> a gallery name which leads me to believe that uh either they have a very specifically curated art collection or a certain euphemism for buttholes is perhaps not as universal as I thought it was. I saw an actual purple starfish in a tide pool. Not a butthole euphemism, but just the, oh. the sea creature. It was very pretty. A tide, hole, a, a tide pool would be another potential butthole euphemism. Not as good a one. Tide no. pool? No. no. You don't want a pool. If it was called a tide hole. And even then, that would really just be the word hole doing the heavy lifting. There's relatively little lunar influence over our buttholes. As far as I know, I'm not a scientist. Relatively little. <laughs> okay. Gonna pop into more, you know, music? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I don't know. Mm. If there's a the less you know music, I would put that there. That's, that's what we need. And hey, if you can't find us on the social media, there's one more place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? You know, usually I usually feel like I'm, I'm cooking something and tidying up and relaxing in there. I'm going to make some uh, fire-roasted salsa. Oh, that's a good kind of salsa. Nice. How about you? Oh, I'm probably going to be watching the Benson channel, I'd imagine. All right. I'll bring some chips and salsa. Sounds oh, good. Make an afternoon of it. I mean, I assume that Benson is always on in our listeners' hearts regardless. It is soothing in a way, I think. Except the horse bit. Yeah, Robert Guillaume is a goddamn delight. If you'd like to help support the show financially, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus information. It's not information. <laughs> There's some. Yeah, there's some information. It's news, reviews, stuff you can use about comic books. And I, you know what? There is stuff you can use and information in that, uh, that advice video that I made. I, I have good advice for, for all the people of the world. Who? <laughs> yes? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's been a long week, Corey. Yeah. Anyway, there's stuff up there that you can look at and watch and listen to. And it's all up there as a special thank you for our donors who really do make it possible for us to keep doing the show. So uh, thank you for that, donors. I, I appreciate it, and I appreciate you. 
Corey, if people would like to help support the show in a non-financial way, how, how would you recommend they do that? Huh? Riddle well, me that, Corey. If you can't find Gabriel's horn to revive John Gnark, you could instead go tell somebody about the show. You'd be like, hey, this is a pretty good show. Yeah. Here's the information. Maybe not this episode. Maybe not this particular one, but, you know, pick your favorite. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Pick your favorite and share it and broadcast it. Wait, is that illegal? I don't care. Do it anyway, man. Do crime. There's probably a a little share thing wherever you get your podcast next to the episode. So yeah, but if you can figure out a way to do it illegally, do that. You know, because if if there is a law against sharing this podcast, that's an unjust law. And so you shouldn't obey because they can't tell you what to do. Don't want to push you around. You're a sovereign citizen. (laughs) And another thing you could do is to leave a review. If you like the show, you could probably do that wherever you got your podcast. Click the little review button, say something like, you know, this episode wasn't the best, but most of them are pretty great. Five stars. This show is better than a purple starfish in a tide pool. Five stars. Yep. Oh, if your purple starfish is making a tide pool, that's probably not a good sign. Don't. That's a... You don't have to put that in the review, Corey. <laughs> Thank I'm goodness. just saying, if that is the case, maybe consult a medical professional. Which oh, yeah. we are yeah. not. We are not. We are enthusiastic medical amateurs, but that is all. That is it. Well, until next week, Bob Sinduckton. Good art. <laughs> Bye. You ready? Yep. I'm going to say three numbers and then I'm going to clap. Six, one, 18. Let's try a traditional one. One, two, three. All right. I think that's pretty good. I think between those. Sounded nice to me. Yeah. I honestly, I was kind of surprised you weren't a little more thrown with my, uh, my wacky mix em up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the trick is just don't try and uh, count. Mm. The, the trick, as with many things, is to don't actually listen to the words that I say. Just get a general idea of their tone. Yeah. Well, let it wash over you. <laughs> <laughs> it does help with the enjoyment some, sometimes. Mm.